Well, good morning. It's a wonderful day to be in the house of the Lord. You can open your Bibles with me to the epistle of Jude. We've come through 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. That leads us right up to Jude and then Revelation. And then we'll start back over at Genesis. So in Jude this morning, um, things are going to get weird. And the renowned Bible teacher Chuck Missler always said, when the Bible has something weird in it, you better pay attention. Because these are important things that we're about to discuss. Now, Jude is a general epistle. That means it was not written to a specific person or a specific church, but widely circulated around many churches. It was a general epistle written to Christians. It was written somewhere between 60 and 80 AD. It says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. James and Jude were both brothers of Christ. And we say brothers, technically half-brothers, right? Because they shared a womb, but they did not share a father with Jesus. So James and Jude were the half-brothers of Christ, and they actually did not believe that he was the Son of God until after his resurrection. Um, The author of the epistle of James is this James, the half-brother of Christ that we're talking about. Matthew 13.55 and Mark 6.3 both list out the names of Jesus' brothers. It reads, and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Now Judas here is Jude. These are the same people. Not to be confused with Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus. Uh, Different Judases. Okay, these brothers, James and Jude, did not believe that Christ was the Son of God until after his resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15.7 tells us that Jesus appeared to his half-brother James after his resurrection, and after that, James and Jude both came to faith. Our text this morning reads, To those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Called, sanctified by God the Father. They are set apart for the work of God. He's addressing Christians. Like the instruments in the tabernacle, you couldn't just grab a pan out of the tabernacle, fill it up with water, and take a drink from it. That was very sacrilegious. Um, But those instruments were set apart for the use of God, for his purposes. In much the same way, we as Christians are set apart for God. You know, I've talked about biblical separation before. It's not as much that we're separated from something, but we are separated to Christ. We are separated to Christ, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Now, the Greek word would read 
and preserved for Jesus Christ. We are both preserved in Christ and preserved for Christ. Jude is writing this epistle to Christians, but based on the examples that he uses, and we'll get into several of them today, he probably had a special intention of reaching Jewish Christians. He uses examples that they would have been familiar with from the Old Testament and from Jewish tradition. Verse 2 reads, Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And I love God's math here. Multiplied. It's not even added, but multiplied to you. Mercy, peace, and love. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude is writing that he originally wanted to write about salvation, our common salvation that we share as brothers and sisters in Christ. And what a blessing that would have been. Um, I have no doubt that if the Holy Spirit had willed it to be so, that that letter would have been something amazing. But that is not what the Holy Spirit had in store for Jude. Jude was prompted by the Holy Spirit to not write about salvation, but to write about contending earnestly for the faith. This is an example of man's will being superseded by the Holy Spirit in the scripture. And it's interesting to look at this and study this. Which was once for all delivered to the saints. That is the faith, not faith in general. The gospel of Jesus Christ does not change. It never has and it never will. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed or anathema. There should be no additions or subtractions from the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, how do we know what is another gospel? We are to contend earnestly for the gospel, for the faith. So what is another gospel? And it's actually pretty simple, but while simple, it can be tough in practice when these teachers, these false teachers, come in clothed as sheep. John wrote, who is a liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. John also wrote, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. Also, sheep eat grass. If you see a sheep eating another sheep, and we can be pretty certain that that's not a sheep. Wolves eat sheep. Sheep eat grass. Keep that in mind. Verse 4, for certain men have crept in unnoticed, 
who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Satan figured out pretty quickly, pretty early on, that he could not destroy the church from outside. If you look back through history, you'll see these points in history where intense persecution has plagued the church. And out of those moments of intense persecution, we see the church actually spread. It doesn't dampen the gospel when we see persecution, but the gospel spreads. And it's amazing how that works. No doubt, uh, the influence of the Holy Spirit. Satan figured out that he could not destroy the church from the outside, so he went in. He is trying to destroy the church, and has been for a long time, from the inside. And that's the danger that we encounter with these false teachers. They put on sheep's clothing. They make themselves look like all the rest of us. But when in reality, there are wolves that have come into the flock to decimate God's flock. Certain men have crept in unnoticed. It's easy to spot a wolf among sheep, but it's harder to spot a wolf dressed up as a sheep. Fortunately, Scripture does point us towards several tests that we can use to identify true righteousness, and conversely, false righteousness. Matthew 7, verses 12 through 29, record part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In this excerpt, he outlines three tests of true righteousness, and false Christianity will inevitably fail these tests. So if you would, turn to Matthew 7, starting in verse 12 with me. Keep your place in Jude, because we're returning there quickly. The first test that Jesus gives is the test of self-denial. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life and there are few who find it. So Jesus speaks of these two types of lifestyles. The easy way finds carnal pleasure on earth and destruction in the end. And that's one way. But the bond slave of Christ finds life. Righteousness leads to the denial of the flesh, of the inklings of the flesh on the earth. The second test that Jesus gives is the test of spiritual fruit. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down 
and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So in a nutshell, the inward nature of these falsely professing Christians has not changed. They are still living towards sin, with sin as the main thrust of their life. They have not, as Peter would put it, escaped the corruption that is in the world. They are the same creation as before they professingly came to know Christ. They call Christ Lord, even in this text, and they even participate in religious acts. But they have not been saved. Jesus is not actually the Lord of their lives. So how do we detect these false believers? Jesus says, you will know them by their fruits. This begs the question, what are these fruits that we're looking for? A, the fruit of the Spirit, obviously, and that should be the biggest one that really stands out to us. In other words, Christian character. And this is laid out in the Beatitudes and in the text on the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 through 23. B, the fruit of the lips. This is our testimony and our praise to God. Hebrews 13, 15 reads, Therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. C, holy living. Romans 6, 22 reads, But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. D, good works. Colossians 1.10 reads that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And the last one, E, this last fruit that we're looking for, is lost souls, one to Christ. Romans 1.13 reads, Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. And Paul there talking about winning souls. So these are all fruits that we can expect to see from children of God, from joint heirs with Christ. Professing Christians can be involved in religious activities, and they can pretend to be saved, but if they're not honestly born again, they will not reveal these fruits in their daily lives. The third test that Jesus gives in our passage in Matthew 
is the test of permanence and obedience. Therefore, starting in verse 24, therefore, who, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall. For it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Both of these men that Jesus alluded to heard the sayings of Christ. They both had the knowledge necessary. The difference is that one of these men did the sayings of Christ. This is where we find the only difference between them. The one who did the sayings of Christ built his house on a firm foundation, on the foundation of the word of God. I imagine these two guys, and they're hypothetical, it's a parable, I imagine that they had the same building materials, the same blueprints, and the same skillful craftsmen working on these houses for them. Same exact houses built on different foundations. And we see the dramatic consequences of the foundation. It was a great fall for the man who built his house on the word of man or the sand. When the storms of this life come, and we are promised that they will come, the house built on the rock will stand. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The words of Paul. So those are the tests that Jesus gives us for identifying false believers. Now, we just came through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. John gave us tests as well, and we won't go into those in-depthly, but I want to remind you what those tests are. The first test is the test of love. The second, the test of obedience. The third is the test of truth. And you can go back into the 1st John, 2nd John, 3rd John tapes if you want to recount all of that. It's all there. In Matthew 7.22, which we just looked at, when Jesus is talking about these false professors of the faith, he says, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now it's worth us taking note that this judgment that came on these false believers caught many of them by surprise. They did not know that they were falsely professing the name of Christ. That has to make us think. If you're like me, you think, well, I know Jesus. No, I'm, I'm in good with him. You know, but don't deceive yourselves. These guys deceived themselves into thinking that they were believers. Now, 
John says, we can know that we are saved. We can know that we have everlasting life. And we use those same three tests, love, obedience, and truth, to know that we are saved. I would invite you to take this to your personal prayer life. You know, just ask God to make it clear to you. Ask him to search your heart to see if there's any instance of iniquity there. Just take it to him in prayer, but take heed to yourselves. Ask God to search your heart, and we should be walking in the Spirit just as we have begun in the Spirit. Now, this passage in Matthew, Jesus is talking about false believers. And I do want to be clear that all false believers are not necessarily false teachers. That is an important distinction. Just because someone is a little confused in their theology does not make them a false teacher. Um, In fact, there is a biblical way to deal with these people. We see this in Titus 3.10. When Paul is writing to Titus, he says, Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. There should be a loving but pointed conversation first. If the man does not turn away from his ways after the first and second admonition, or stern talking to, um, we are to reject him. And the Greek word for divisive is the same word that's translated as heretic. And truly, division is the goal of the false teacher. They want to split away a number of the people to follow after them and their new doctrine. Division is their goal. Back to our text in Jude. Told you we'd circle back around who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. This is still in verse 4. It's like God knew his children from the foundation of the world. And we know that that is true. God had foreknowledge of those who would come to know him. But he also knows those who would set their hearts against him. They were long ago marked out for this condemnation. This is not God forcing them to be his enemy. That's not what this is. Rather, he knew their hearts before they even did. And he does make note of that. This phrase may also make a more specific reference to Peter's prophecy written in 2 Peter 2. But there were also false prophets among the people even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. Jude is now saying that these false teachers prophesied by Peter have come and are currently at work in the church. Um, Of course, in the day that he's writing this. But even today, we still have the same phenomenon going on. Uh, Who turn the grace of our God into lewdness. They use grace 
as an excuse for sinful living. And that's, that's all this is saying. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? That's from Romans 6, 1 and 2. If we have died to sin with Christ, we can no longer live comfortably in it. God's grace is not permission to live as we please. Ungodly men who turn the grace of God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, I'll point you back to 1 John. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. And Jude is saying that this is exactly what these guys are doing. It's clear to us that false teachers are working today. But what can a Christian like me, humble old guy, do about this thing that's happening? Well, in verse 3, Jude says, contend earnestly for the faith. Study your Bible. Know what it says. And then earnestly contend for it. Now, as we come into verse 5, Jude begins laying out a number of examples seven of them to be exact, that illustrate one main point. These false teachers are marked for judgment. Again, to the same tune as 2 Peter 2. And we'll see many parallels between Jude's small epistle and the second chapter of 2 Peter. Peter writes, for a long time their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. This is the same idea that we're getting from Jude. Verse 5, But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. This is our first example from the Old Testament. He's pointing back to when the Israelites came to Kadesh Barnea and they sent out spies into the promised land to bring back a report. The spies came back and all but two of them, Joshua and Caleb were the two, all but two of them brought a bad report. They said, man, there are some big guys in this land. There are giants. We are as grasshoppers to them. And there's no way that we can take this land. Now I'll remind you that these same people just witnessed God miraculously deliver them from the Egyptians. They watched the Red Sea part in front of them. They walked through it with walls of water on each side of them. They looked back as the Egyptian army was swallowed up into the Red Sea. They witnessed the manna falling from heaven, coating the ground, sustaining them through the wilderness for all these years. They witnessed this. All the miracles, they saw them. Yet, it was not enough for them to believe that God would help them conquer the land 
that he had promised. What a sobering reminder this is to us. You know, sometimes we go about thinking that if we could just see God work in a special way, if we could just see a miracle, then we would have the faith that we needed. How far from true is this? If we truly examine ourselves, we will find that this is not the case. Look at these Israelites who've been miraculously delivered from the hands of the Egyptians. They've come so far in the wilderness witnessing a miracle every day. And yet, when it came down to it, when it was time to knuckle down and trust God, they didn't. God allowed that whole generation, save for Joshua and Caleb, who actually did believe, to die in the wilderness. They were not allowed to come into the land of promise. And it was because of their unbelief that God destroyed that generation. Though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. There is judgment for unbelief. Verse 6, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And I'm going to read 7 with it because we get more context. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. These are strong words from Jude. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode. Now, angels, we know, are not involved in any kind of reproduction. Angels are a host. They've all been created on the same day. Also, I'll add that there are only male angels. We don't see any accounts in Scripture of female angels. So we know that angels were all created on the same day. um, And where humans can pit some blame for our sinful nature on Adam and Eve, because sin was passed down to us, the angels can't do that. Since they were all created on the same day, the ones who fell made the conscious decision to go against God. And there is no savior for angels. We are fortunate. We are very fortunate. We have a savior in Jesus Christ. And he was able to redeem us but there is no redemption for angels who sin. Now, God, when he created the angels, ascribed to them a certain domain, a certain habitation, but they left their abode or habitation that God assigned them. They left their own abode. The sense of it is this. They left once and for all, their own abode. Just as sin was brought into the world by one man, so the free gift of righteousness 
was brought by one man's obedience, that is Christ. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. This is Romans 5.12. And then a couple verses later in verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. This is God's plan to redeem humanity. Men have a Savior, but there is, in effect, no way to undo what the angels did. And we'll see what that is here in just a second. Basically, they transgressed God's natural laws. It says in Jude, He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now, this is the punishment for the sin they committed. They're confined under darkness in everlasting chains. They're awaiting their final judgment. And no doubt Jude is referring to the angels who sinned, as referred also by Peter in 2 Peter 2. And these angels who sinned were first pointed at in Genesis 6. Their sin involved leaving the dimension that they were created to inhabit and cohabiting with human women in the days of Noah. The result of this commingling were the Nephilim. They are the giants, the mighty men of old, men of renown. So if you'd like, turn back with me to Genesis 6, and we're going to look at this real quickly. Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. These sons of God are referring to fallen angels. In Genesis 6, these are the same ones that Jude is referring to as having left their own abode and who are reserved in chains in darkness for the judgment. The same angels also Peter referred to in chapter 2 of his second epistle. Moving into verse 7. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, in similar manner to these. Now, this is important. The Greek grammar necessitates that this little snippet be read as in a similar manner to these aforementioned angels. The gender of the word tutois, uh, translated these, doesn't agree with either the cities around them 
or Sodom and Gomorrah. But the masculine tatois has to be referring back to the masculine agalos, angels. This means that in a similar manner to these is referring back to the angels in verse 6. Having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh. It seems that all sense of right and wrong eluded the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. They had given themselves over to any fleshly impulse that they felt. What a danger this is to us. And when we talk about the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, we automatically go to homosexuality. That's kind of the direction that our minds go. But while that was certainly present in the culture, that is not the end of it. There was much more and much more horrifying things going on. This verse gives us a little more insight into these devious practices of the people. They gave themselves over to their desires and gone after strange flesh. The word translated strange is heteros, and that means one not of the same nature, form, or class. These people shared in the sin of the angels in going after sexual partners that were not of their same nature. The angels procreated with human women back in Genesis 6. And it's obvious that some of this behavior made it through the flood. We know that uh, there were Nephilim, the offspring of this um, irreligious mating, after the flood. We know that these guys existed because Joshua comes against them in his conquest. Uh, Also, other references to them are made throughout the scriptures. And this same behavior shows up in Sodom and Gomorrah with angels coming and cohabiting, and this time specifically with males. I'm sure that the angels came for females as well. But back in Genesis 19, if you recall, God sent two angels into the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to rescue Lot, who was a righteous man dwelling among an unrighteous generation. God sent these two angels in um, who looked like men. They had cloaked themselves, disguised themselves as men. The men of the city surrounded Lot's house, where Lot was housing the angels. And the men demanded that he give those two men, angels, over to the mob so they could, quote, know them carnally. They wanted to have homosexual relations with these two men. Verse 4 says that the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. That verse makes it very clear that the whole population of males were in on this. I would propose this question. 
if they just wanted a homosexual partner, what stopped them from turning to anyone else in the crowd to satisfy that desire? It seems to me that the men of Sodom and Gomorrah knew somehow that these two men in Lot's house were something more than simply men. They seemed to have some knowledge that these were angelic beings. And that is what drove their truly insane behavior. They were used to this sort of a relationship already. And so they tried to knock Lot's door down, take the men out, and know them carnally. Lot even went so far as to offer his two virgin daughters to the mob. He said, you can do whatever you want to them, but leave these two men alone. That is the depth of depravity that we're looking at in this situation. Okay, and I don't sugarcoat this at all for you. Okay, we're just laying it out as it is, as the Bible tells it. And here's the thing, and this is really the root of this. Okay, the book of Jude isn't about fallen angels, it's not about Sodom and Gomorrah. The book of Jude is about false teachers and the danger that they pose. So we look at these strange examples that Jude is giving, and he's not done giving his examples. And we think, man, these are some really bad examples of false teachers coming into the church. I mean, what does this have to do with our church age and combating these false teachers? Well, when you look at it closer, you see that Jude is just relating the judgment of these fallen angels, these wicked people, to the judgment of false teachers. That's what he's doing here. It's about the judgment. The enemy is at work in all of them. False teachers, wicked people, everyone alike. The enemy is at work. And their destruction does not slumber, as Peter would put it. Now, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. These dreamers defile the flesh. Jude is comparing the evil of the false teachers to that of the men in Sodom and Gomorrah who sought after homosexual relations with angels. This is as bad as you can imagine. That's the condemnation that these false teachers are awaiting. It's not going to be a pretty judgment day. He says they reject authority. Now, one way we can recognize these guys that come into the church, is just listening to them. They'll deny that the Lord is speaking through, you know, the pastor or any other leaders. They'll deny that. And they'll try to peel off part of the congregation to follow them in their own special teachings. 
I have some new wisdom for you. I have some new knowledge that you haven't heard before. You need to follow me, come to my little Bible study, in quotes, that I'm doing, and I will show you the true way to God. They reject the authority structures that God has already set up in the church. And look, it's, it's not my authority as a pastor that I lean on. And it's not that authority that they're even trying to undermine. There's nothing intrinsic to me that makes me special or gives me any right of authority. What I'm doing is teaching God's word. And y'all tell me, but I hope that God is speaking through his word. And if that is happening, then this church is functioning. The authority of God's word is special. And that is the only authority that I stand on myself. That's the authority that you undermine when you say that God isn't speaking in a Bible-teaching, Bible-believing congregation. So that is actually the authority that they undermine. And we'll talk more about undermining the authority of God's word when we get to verse 11, the rebellion of Korah. And speak evil of dignitaries. And the Greek word for dignitaries actually has no implication of political leadership. Now, when we read that, immediately we think, oh, so if you talk bad about the president, you're one of these false teachers. That's not actually what the Bible is saying. It's actually speaking of other heavenly beings, heavenly dignitaries, um, angelic beings and the like. We've seen the guys all dressed up in their white suit. They used an entire bottle of hairspray to get ready that morning. And they're yelling, hooping, hollering, I bind you, Satan. I bind you. And we know that's not how it works. You know, they don't have the authority to do that, first of all. We are so small and so insignificant. Um, we have no authority. Again, going back to the idea of authority, we have none. It is only the authority of Christ that works, for, for lack of a better word. You don't have a shred of power against Satan or against any of his minions. This idea of speaking evil to heavenly dignitaries carries over to the next verse. So we'll look at that. Uh, verse 9. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring, a re- bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. And that is the key. Anytime I'm dealing with any kind of a spirit, something supernatural. I never want to go at that on my own. I always want to put the Lord between me and it. Um, and he is the only one with power over them. And he is 
He has the ultimate power over them. We know that they will be judged in the end. Um, and God is the ultimate power over these beings. Even Michael the archangel, one of the most powerful beings in existence, did not rebuke Satan under his own authority. But he rebuked Satan under the Lord's authority. The Lord rebuke you. And I always want to put the Lord between me and any of these angelic beings. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. This is Jude's way of saying, these guys don't know what they're talking about. You know, put very succinctly. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Verse 11, Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. So what in the world is he talking about here? Uh, the way of Cain is pretty simple. Cain came to God on his own terms, not on God's terms. His brother Abel offered a sacrifice in the prescribed way, not offering the fruit of his hands, but a blood sacrifice. And this is how he came to God. God was pleased with Abel's sacrifice. Cain tried to come to God on his own terms by the works of his hands, thought, oh, I'll offer a grain offering to God. Surely that'll work too. This did not please God. And we don't get to come to God however we want. There is one way that today we can come to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Simply, we don't get to pick how we come to God. He's made one way available. And these false teachers have gone in the way of Cain. That is, they come to God however they please. And when you boil it down, they are inventing a new religion. It's a different gospel than that which was once and for all delivered to the saints. Have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit. Balaam had an ability to give a curse or a blessing to someone, and he used this ability for profit. It's like someone coming along and saying, hey, next weekend we're putting on a healing seminar. You know, the admittance fee is just $500. Come join us. Using, I'll put gifts in air quotes, for profit. It is for profit, and this is the error of Balaam. It says that these false teachers have run greedily in the error of Balaam. They are more concerned with profit than they are about the word of God. And that is a problem. Lastly, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Korah was a Levite who was not content to simply assist in the tabernacle. He wanted to serve 
as a priest as well. And he was a Levite, but he was not a priest. He gathered some people to his side, and ultimately Moses challenged him to see who God was with. The Lord opened up the earth and swallowed up the rebellious men, those who were following after Korah. Of course, this attitude was a direct rebellion against the word of God as given by Moses. God made the tabernacle appointments. God decided who was a priest and who was not. It wasn't Moses' decision. But Korah rose up against Moses, and Moses represented the word of God. So Korah ultimately rebelled against the word of God. He came directly against Moses, but in effect was rebelling against God. These false teachers are also in rebellion against God and against his word. And it is in this same rebellion of Korah, the same idea. They're following after this rebellion against God's word. And this is why they will perish. Um, So the first half of Jude, roughly, um, we covered a lot of ground this morning, but we have more to go. So we've run out of time and we are going to finish up the book of Jude next week and that will bring us to revelation so as we close our study this morning i invite you to join me in a word of prayer